Hey everyone, welcome back to the Keep It Quirky podcast, quarantine edition. I'm Katie Quinn, your host, and together we'll talk to creatives and entrepreneurs because you know what? Passion begets passion. And just because we're quarantining doesn't mean we can't do things that we're super, super excited about. For today's episode, I caught up with Ned Palmer. Ned is the author of the book A Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles, which is a great read. And he's also the man behind the Cheese Tasting Company, where he shares cheeses and stories of the eccentric cast of characters behind the wedges you're eating. Ned describes himself as a freelance cheesemonger. His passion for cheese is really only equaled by his passion for jazz, philosophy, and theater which are all things that he's also worked in. So needless to say, he thinks about cheese and all things fermentation, in fact, in a way that some others may not. Yeah, I love fermented foods, and, and they all have a sort of edginess to them. I know this, they're subversive. Does that make sense? I feel like fermentation's kind of subversive. It's sort of naughty. Yeah, in, in its way. I see that. I get it. it. We talk about how he got the idea for his book, which has been super successful since it came out late last year. You know, I'm always fascinated by going from idea to action, to doing something about the idea. So this actually brings to mind, do you guys want to hear more about like how to write a book or how to get a literary agent? Let me know, because if you're keen, then I'll bring on some experts to talk about it. I might even invite my literary agent to talk about it. Um, And I would be more than happy to share with you my experiences in book writing. So shoot me a note at QKady on Instagram or Twitter. Let me know if you want to hear about that. So when I met up with Ned, it only made sense that we meet at the cheese shop where we've each worked in the past and indeed where we first met a couple of years ago, Neil's Yard Dairy. Can I bring some cheese? Is that all right? <laughs> Can I have a paroche? Mm. What do you like about that? It's fresh, and clean and simple, you know? It's almost not cheese. It's only on the other side of milk from cheese. You know what I mean? Primitive. It's what they were making. Well, I think it's what they were making 6,000 years ago in in, um, Somerset, you know, when they were building Stonehenge. Uh, Shameless puff for my book. Um, What's it called again? A Cheesemonger's History of the British Isles, available in all good bookshops by 60.99. This book will make you more attractive to the gender of your choice, wiser and better able to choose cheese. As you can tell, Ned's a real hoot. I really enjoyed talking to him. The rest of our conversation was outside the cheese shop at London's famous Borough Market. There's some loud market sounds towards the beginning of our chat, but it does calm down. So without further delay, here's my conversation with cheesemonger and author Ned Palmer. Hi, Ned. Hi. Hi, Casey. <laughs> and it only it was fitting that we met at Neil's Yard Dairy and tell, tell the people why it was fitting. Well, I became a cheesemonger through working at Neil's Yard Dairy, I guess. I started there on the 2nd of December 2002. I still remember the day because apart from being born and getting married, it's probably the most important day of my life. <laughs> and you work there too. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. And so it only made sense that we connected over the cheese at Neil's Yard Dairy and now we're strolling. There's cured meats and more big wheels of cheese. That's a lot so of kefili. You see this stall here. The goal with kefili, which is this cheese here, is the reason I'm a cheesemonger. 
and I started on this very stool in 2000. It's still the same, same, same stool. The stool is made out of the wood from the furniture from the parish office of Flandry Brevi, which is the little Welsh village where this cheese was born, and it's still the same stool. And I started there in 2000 when I was asked for a job because I was a, worked in the theatre. So, you know, you're always asked for a job in the theatre. And um, I had a bit of cheese with Todd, who makes it, and I realised that all the cheese I'd ever eaten before in my life was rubbish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and that was it. And then after a while, he said, I'll get you a job at Neil's idea if you stop asking me questions, because I just couldn't stop. So it's nice to see that. I mean, that really is the beginning. That's, a, that's amazing. I mean, it is true. Once you have really good farmhouse cheese, you realise everything else you've eaten is, is rubbish. It's kind of rubbish. And it's, I mean, really, it's just a different product, isn't it? You know, yeah. So do, do you think that there is space for both on a shelf? Do you think that, that block cheddar has its place? It's a, gosh, this is such an issue, isn't it? So there's one thing, and it's just about affordability. And, and, you know, block cheddar is, God, I don't know what, is it five pounds a kilo or something? I don't know, I don't buy very much, but probably. And then, you know, Montgomery's is whatever that is, 25 pounds, 26 pounds a kilo. And, you know, if you've got a family to feed and you've got four little kids, they're going to eat a lot of cheese. So that's, a, that's an issue. I wish that we could make enough farmhouse or artisanal cheese or whatever you call it, that we could sell volumes enough that we could maybe bring the price down a bit and that the cheese makers could survive and that, you know, more people could afford to eat it. I'd like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, I, I don't want to... In a sense, I don't want to say negative things about anything. You know, like your mum teaches you, you know, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything. I can't help feeling that when you have a piece of Montgomery's cheddar, there's a whole experience which is a rich experience. You know, I mean, God, it's a spiritual experience, isn't it? You know, it's a profound thing. It's not just nutrition. You're eating the country. You're eating uh, the southwest of England. You're eating... 400 years of cheese making history you're eating Jamie's uh, whatever it is 30 years of cheese making crop Jamie Montgomery who is the yeah the cheese maker yeah makes this lovely Montgomery's cheddar Um, and when you eat a piece of you know a factory made cheddar it's not much happening. Yeah. Um, it's pretty. It's pretty one note. It's one it? note. It's a thinner experience. One thing I notice actually, when I've been stupid, you know, I'm, I forgot to buy some cheese, and my wife wants cauliflower cheese, and I seem to be the cook in the house. Uh, I go over the road and buy some of this block cheddar, and while I'm cooking, I'm eating it, and I finish the block. Be- and it's not because I'm going, oh, my God, it's so complex. And, oh, I love the balanced acidity. It's like it's unsatisfying, yeah. and it leads me to gorge on it. It, it just goes to show the f- philosophical quandaries behind cheese, which I think most people don't think about. But I brought you on this podcast to talk about fun. <laughs> <laughs> fun, nice stuff. Fun, yeah, yeah. 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 Which, and nice we can stuff. get back into philosophical stuff yeah, right. maybe later. But, you know, I think that you are a prime example of what a clever person who loves cheese can do with their lives and their careers. Um, You are entrepreneurial, and so you have combined that entrepreneurial sense with your love of cheese, and you've done such cool stuff. So let's start with, you were in the theater, as you said, you were a jazz musician, and then you found your way into cheesemongering, and then you are the first 
the person I've ever heard self-describe as a freelance cheesemonger. You're also the author of A Cheesemonger's History to the British Isles, um, which has sold quite well. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, and, and you have your own company and yeah. you do cheese-related events. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's a lot. I know, right? And I mean, it, it, it's, it's nice to... Yeah, I, I have the best life. I definitely have my best life. Uh, and it constantly amazes me. I, and I mean, when I'm standing up in front of 20 people who are looking really, really happy because there's a huge plate of cheese and all this wine and beer and stuff, you know, and I'm thinking I'm about to show off massively, talk, eat cheese, drink wine, and this is, this is my life and this is my job. It's amazing. Uh, um, then there's a sense in which I feel... I've never really made a decision in my life. I've just done the next thing, and the next thing was, well, you know, like I'm really grateful to the world of small political theatre for being such a rubbish way to make a living. <laughs> because if that hadn't, you know, if I'd got rich off doing that, I might not have ended up selling cheese with Todd Chathawan and tasting that go with Kefili and, you know, all of that. Uh, and once I found Niels Dairy, which, as you know, is an incredible place to work. Uh, um, and interestingly, so I'm just going to free range here about a few things. You know, it was set up by a guy called Nicholas Saunders, Neil Sarderi. Before Randolph Hodgson? Randolph. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know Bob, who the martial artist with the long hair, who, was, uh, who lived next door and upstairs? No. Well, he's not. He's retired now, but he was on the board of the dairy. He designed everything. Like, whenever you use an amazing thing that works really well, like the blue towel dispenser, that's Bob. Uh, Bob gave Randolph his first job at the dairy, no which was sanding off some some cheese shelves. Now it's Randolph's first job, but like you know, a bit like me, only more so. <laughs> he really found what the thing was that he wanted to do, and it was that. But the guy who set it up was a kind of hippie entrepreneur, and he believed that work should be fulfilling and challenging, and, and, and that what and, you know, any even such a menial thing, maybe like washing racks or something, which you guys don't have to do anymore, but we had to wash a lot of racks. You know, it could have in itself a certain nobility and challenge, and 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 like if that's the ethic, then that's what I want to do. And, and the way that everything in the dairy has a way to do it, and there's a really good way to do it, and that's the way you do it. Like if it's wrapping cheese or cleaning the toilet, yeah. there's a way. And, and, I, and you do it well. You do it well, yeah. exactly. You do it with grace. And, and so, because I still wonder why. I mean, in a way, I wrote the book to figure out why I picked cheese. Because I did an awful lot of jobs before I was a cheesemonger. And I never stuck one longer than two years. Well, did you find an answer? Yeah. I think that... So cheese is fractal. In the sense, in the proper mathematical sense, that the more powerful your instrument for looking at cheese is, the more complexity there is. So cheese is infinite, and I'm never going to run out of stuff to find out, you know, about cheese. I love that. It's, it's, it, I mean, you know, you know <laughs> yeah, what I mean? And you know that if you talk to someone like Bill Oglethorpe or Dom Coy, and if you ask some direct questions, Dom, is the acidity in this cheese due to this? He'll probably say, well, I don't know. And then you have to kind of explore it with them and, and get in, you know, and find the way in to just talk around things. So I'm, I'm of, I'm of ten, temperament where certainty is tedious to me. It's probably connected to the jazz thing, like you never play the same thing twice or, you know. But also, you know, you realise that cheese is a, a lens for so many different... Fr- it, 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 it has, what's the metaphor? A viewpoint into so many different 
issues. I mean, there's another thing for me is that Jesus was a way to live my politics because I was in the 90s. I was involved in the environmental movement. Um, back then and it was more about the anti-road protesting and I was part of this thing called Wandsworth Eco Village and I got dragged off my house by a bailiff and stuff and after a while it gets wearing you know and you can only get arrested I personally I burnt out I couldn't really do it anymore but with the cheese I realised that really great cheese is, is made in small scale you know and then it's, it's a sort of inherently sustainable practice I think um So let's talk about the history of cheese on the British Isles. And you say in your book that it kind of has gone through periods of being absolutely exceptional, really extraordinary, and then periods of, like, not being very good and kind of ping-ponging back and forth and waves up and down. Yeah. And that we're at a good part right now. So talk to me about that roller coaster ride. Yeah, well, wow. I don't know. I mean, are we in a good part now? It's a pretty challenging time. Uh, oh, really? I thought that you were... Stuff happened. Like, we just left the EU, which oh, is, which yeah. is you know, a... deeply worrying. But, um, so, my dad was a historian. And that's probably another reason why, you know, this, this book happened. And one thing that he was very... He did sort of grown out of his Marxism at some point, and as most of us do, you know... And so he was going against the idea that there are patterns in history that you could say that, you know, there's a progress from rubbish cheese to great cheese or that there's some inevitable historical pattern or... But, and so I'm of that sort of temperament, but I think that there are reflections, there are ripples and there are uh, rhythms or something. So, so you look at a cheesemaker like the late great Mary Holbrook and she was making cheese in a way that I'm quite convinced was was like a cheesemaker of 6,000 years ago oh yeah because she was so intuitive intuitive she didn't do a lot of measuring I didn't really see her ever measure anything I think um uh, very simple kit well and so there are there are 700 varieties or so of cheese being made in the UK right now is that true are there well, so this speaks to this thing that a lot of people are saying at the moment that we make more cheese than France or more cheeses than the French do, but not more cheese. Maybe there are 700 varieties. I have seen that number quoted. Yeah. And I think I actually do quote it in the book, so soz. But I've got a problem as a recovering philosopher, and this is the problem with being... So I originally did a philosophy degree. Okay, okay. Yeah, um, Like loads of people in the world of cheese, there are a lot of recovering philosophers in the world of cheese, partly because you can't make any money out of philosophy. Right. You know, and also there's a certain rigour that lends itself to, 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 to cheese. But um, when you say one cheese, do you mean cheddar or do you mean that there's Montgomery's... Pitchfork, quicks, you know, so that's four cheddars. Mm-hmm. Or, and, uh, you know, uh, well, I don't know how many cheddars there are right. in Britain. And all now. slightly different styles. Slightly different styles. Yeah. So are they individual cheeses? Mm-hmm. Because if you count that, how many um, how many cotton makers are there in the Loire? Maybe there are thousands. I don't know. Maybe there are. Uh, there's probably hundreds of Robleshaw makers. Um, so then the French have got thousands of cheeses. So. Uh, we, maybe we make 700 cheeses. When we had 10,000 farms making Cheshire, we had 10,000 Cheshires because, like you say, they would have all been different. So it's a bit difficult defining it. 
people weren't so great at writing stuff down. Right, right. So I think that also we would have had the tiny soft cheese that old Mrs. Miggins made, and she made ten a week and sold them in her local market in Lower Puddlington, and no one's ever heard of them yeah. outside of Lower Puddlington because. Yeah. Um, and then the war came along, and they banned all the soft cheese. So then Mrs. Miggins went out of business and uh, stopped making cheese. Right, and cheese in this country and everywhere really changed so drastically with the, with the world wars. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the change, if I go back about into the 1850s, if that's all right, just uh, the change is happening there. The Americans, thank you very much, invented the cheese factory. In 1851, it opened, the first cheese factory opened. When the guy who's actually, what it was, was he was a really, really good cheesemaker. And his son, his son-in-law got a contract to make cheese, but was kind of too nervous to go up against his dad. So he, he gave the contract to his dad. So he, his dad then had this big milk contract. And he kind of realised, wow, I could upscale even more. And so he made a deal with all the local dairy farmers to buy the milk. And then, to, and then had to do it as a kind of factory economy of scale. But it does come from him being an amazing cheesemaker, which is quite nice. So anyway, they invented the factory. <laughs> In the Civil War, they wanted a lot of gold. Uh, and so they were selling cheese to Britain, for example, for gold um, to fight the war. Also, all the cheesemakers are off at, you know, Manassas and Shiloh getting mutilated so um, the, the need for factories was even more so because they had fewer people doing it you know uh, so there was this I think you know meteoric exponential growth of factory cheese the British government has just never seemed to care all that much about about its, its indigenous cheeses so there wasn't any effort to protect the market with tariffs or anything like that and and it made life really hard for a lot of cheesemakers I think a lot of them uh, went out of business or went over to milk or something else and then railways came along and you could sell milk into cities so why bother making cheese when you've got to wait two years for cheddar to mature and it might turn out to be rubbish even if you're good you know or you can sell liquid milk right away and for example in Derbyshire all of their traditional Derbyshire cheese disappeared by 1900 it was gone so it didn't even take wars to do that um the First World War increased that process, but I don't think it was particularly significant in a way. But the Second World War, the government, you know, set up a rigid control over food. The Milk Marketing Board, the right? The Marketing Board was before the war. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't. But so that was another thing that is kind of confusing for people when I as a cheesemonger when I heard of the Milk Marketing Board I thought of it as the dread Stalinist organisation that nearly destroyed British cheese because they made it in effect illegal for you to be a small scale cheese producer it was too inefficient don't bother right so they had the farmers just sell all their milk to to yeah it's the weirdest thing and I still don't understand it and I tried really hard and I've got three degrees <laughs> the milk marketing board bought your milk and then sold it back to you to make cheese and the difference was your um, was your profit right I mean, still don't really get the economics of it and they completely determined the worth and value of, of everything right? did yeah. and, and it all was down to the fact that the milk market the milk market was so volatile that uh, you could be a producer and one day your milk would be worth a shilling a litre well it wouldn't be a litre a shilling a gallon and then the next week it would be worth a penny a gallon and you can't run a business like that so the milk marketing board existed to stabilise the price it did a great job in that sense and kept the British dairy industry alive and we probably would have lost all of our dairy farming if that hadn't happened so 
research for the book changed my mind on that. In World War II, the government decided that big hard cheese is the way to go as a sort of efficiency of scale. You, you, you concentrate the milk into larger creameries rather than going all over the place to pick it up. Uh, it's less perishable than a little soft cheese. I've always said you could send it out to the troops in Burma. You know, you're not going to send them a nice little soft cheese. It wouldn't work. It was mostly about rationing, actually. It was because they needed to divide it to very small pieces to give their fair rations. So they only allowed five cheeses, and all the rest disappeared. Uh, so thankfully, cheeses like Stilton were reborn after the war, and they, well, they got up their production again. I've, there must have been hundreds of local varieties that just disappeared. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I love this stuff. I think it's so fascinating. And my, and my appreciation for British cheese has just skyrocketed since I moved here almost three years ago now. Why did you feel like, like your book needs to be written? Was there a moment? Was it like a slow realization? What was the, what was the clicking point? That, was a, that is a really, really interesting question. Let me see. This is so, this is going to sound prideful. The great book about British cheese when I was a younger monger was um, Patrick Rance's book, Great British Cheese, which was published in, I think, 82. And sadly, Rance died, you know, a little while ago. And and so we're not going to get another one or an update. So it was a fantastic work, but it was out of date. It's actually a bit sad reading it because there's cheeses that have disappeared, you know. Um, Also, Rance's book is much more for the cheesemonger or the proper cheese geek. You've got to be well into it to want to read that. It's it's not super accessible, but I've read it at the British Library before. That's where I've got it. That's like the whole vibe, as you know, that is definitely the vibe of reading Rance. You're right. There's also the towering work, Cheese and Culture, by Mark, uh, by, um, not Kolansky, what's his name? Uh, it'll come to me. Um, I know what you're talking about. I don't know his name. Paul Kinstep. Yeah. Paul Kinstep. And, and it is a wonderful, wonderful book. And that, in a sense, gave me the idea. Because, you know, it's called Cheese and its Place in Western Civilization. And you're like... That was a look of amazement, by the way. I'm just miming it. Uh, but Kulansky's book, again, one is all about the whole world. Kinstedt. Kinstedt. Kulansky wrote about salt. Thank you. Um, don't edit that out. It's much more human if I mess up occasionally. Uh, yeah, his book is about the whole world. So it begins in um, the Fertile Crescent at the beginning of farming. And I wanted to have something that's specifically about the British Isles. The other thing is, his book is still pretty dense. You've got to really want to know about it. It's beautifully written, so elegant. If I could describe cheesemaking the way that he does, you know, in a couple of sentences, then I'd put down my pen, you know. <laughs> but it's, it's super hefty. So I wanted to, you know, write an up-to-date book about the state of British cheese. I wanted people to eat more British and Irish cheese. I wanted people to buy more small-scale, nice, beautiful, complex small-scale cheeses from private, from independent shops, you know? Those, those were some of the reasons. I wanted to make something accessible. Here it is. The key function of the cheesemonger is to make people feel relaxed about coming into a speciality cheese shop and trying some cheese and buying some cheese because so few of those people feel like they have some expertise in cheese buying way more people feel like oh that's a Sauvignon Blanc I know it's a bit crispy or something so I feel like our job in a lot of ways is to make them relax and it's okay you can just try some stuff and then you know and then you'll see what you like and so in a way I want the book to be like that 
um, it's funny, I think. I hope it's funny. It's quite funny. I, just, I make myself yeah. laugh reading it. It's <laughs> embarrassing, but I do. So it's definitely it, entertaining. Good, and that's the point. And it's kind of like sneaking in some information underneath the funny. Um, so I wanted that, and it's working. I get my friend, my cheesemonger friends ring me up and say, wow, people keep coming in with the book going, Ned says I should eat this and this and this. And so that's working. Um... I wanted to write a book. You know, I wanted to write a book from when I was six. My dad and mum wrote books. You know, the house is full of books. I wanted to write a book. I thought it was going to be the next Tolkien or the next Sartre or something. I didn't think it was going to be a book about cheese. But I did, you know, I wanted to do that. And then I really did find the thing that I loved enough to have the gumption to write a book. Because that's the other thing. It's, it's a hell of a... I mean, if someone sat down and wrote the word the 100,000 times, I'd still have respect for them. Yeah. It's a hell of a task. Yeah. Uh, so you need to really love the thing in order to write about it, I think. Those are true words. I am in the you, you final stretch of the manuscript right now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wowie. So what, what's yours about? I know I'm, you're supposed to be asking me questions. <laughs> do you want to tell yeah, me? Yeah, so the, one of the major sections is about cheese yeah, in so England. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. but yeah. bread, wine, and cheese in general is the book. You better get it right then. I'm, I mean, listen, I'm talking to the pro right now. <laughs> you know, I mean... There should be, if there's a collective noun for cheesemongers, it could be a disagreement of cheesemongers, you know, like you have a murder of crows or something. So I was, I was well afeared that when I wrote this book, you know, that my mates would be ringing me up going, Ned, that's not really what Renard does, is it? I mean, come on, you know, salt, nobody does this, you know. And thankfully, everyone's been, well, not just super nice, I seem to have managed to not mess it up uh, too badly. But that's the fear when you write, is that, you yeah. know, and you're writing in a sense to a community of people who know a lot uh, and that's quite that's quite challenging and I the other thing is I wanted a book that cheesemongers could read and it would be useful largely in terms of stories because I don't know the way I sell cheese is to talk a lot as I'm doing now you know but tell stories uh, and so I wanted to give them a fund of lovely stories you know and a sense of the pride in in Look, I'm not a nationalist. I don't care what country I come from. I'm not interested. I, borders are arbitrary. You know, my family's from New Zealand. I'm like not from anywhere. You know, but I was born here, so I just have no home culture at all. On the, you know, but the cheeses of Britain and Ireland are absolutely smashing. A really good Stilton is one of the great cheeses of the world, and people still have this deal like Britain makes cheese really, but French cheese is good, right? So we've, it's great, we've still got this job, cheesemongers, to, to, to convince people, to show people that, that we've made some glorious cheese here. And I think there was that as well. I just wanted to literally to champion the cause of British and Irish cheese. Yeah, shine a light on it. Yeah, That's beautiful. Totally. Also, I like what you were saying about fear as a motivator. I think it is the ultimate motivator and like that's the reality for anyone like listening. Yeah. Successful people just are driven by fear. Uh, it's a lot of that. It's a really interesting tension of fear and wanting to make people happy in some nice way like I would have. So I spent the first six hours of my book deal staring to blank page until my wife, who writes lots of books, novels, came in and said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm trying to write the first sentence. And she's like, oh, God, that's not what you do. Listen, come with me. But one of the things you learn, well, this is about finding your voice. And I, the only prose in bulk I've ever written is for academic papers. So, like, the first 3,000 words had to be chucked out because I was writing, in as much as we're in all, there's a scene often, you know, it's awful, dry stuff. And, and then she was like, well, just do it like you do a tasting. 
And so what I was really almost, I was closing my eyes and imagining a, a bunch of people all looking at me, all interested, from 21 to 73, you know, of different sort of social class, whatever, all there being like, tell us all about this lovely cheese then. And that was the way, so I wanted to tell people. And that was a night you just really want to get that across and yeah. do it right. You know. The storytelling, that's great. So if you guys want to taste cheese with Ned, you can just pick up his book and then there it is. Like virtual cheese tasting. <laughs> or you could pay me to come to your house or office and do tastings. You could do that. He does do that too. So Ned, you seem like the kind of person who keeps it quirky like the best of them. How are you a kick-ass freelance cheesemonger, author? Um, how do you keep it quirky? That's a lovely question I mean there is this other thing and I just don't know any other way to be uh, and uh, but it's a lovely question um, I couldn't I just couldn't stick at anything that I wasn't 100% into uh, and that's a really like it's a huge privilege to be able to do something you're 100% into and it was a pretty spoiled attitude in a way to be like no I'm not I was offered you know, I worked in I worked as a hospital porter I mean after getting my second degree you know because I didn't like what I was doing and I just so I just left it and got um, a quick job and, uh, and being a hospital porter is an absolutely fascinating job but they realised I had a few brain cells kicking around and they tried to get me to train as a radiographer which is a good career and you get a decent wage well you know not in the NHS anymore but you used to uh, save people's lives you know and I couldn't take it because I knew that wouldn't be the thing that I loved and I felt some guilty about about not taking that job so I thought here is this opportunity and you're like oh no 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 I'm so in a sense I just couldn't do anything else I like jazz and I've always liked jazz and I liked jazz before I knew what it was and my dad would play these old Louis Armstrong things and Fat Swallow and all this crazy music and to me cheese and jazz are really similar analogous or even more than analogous funkiness and fermentation like I like all the fermented foods and I don't think that's a coincidence and fermented foods which my god are our staples bread alcohol cheese yeah I love fermented foods and and they all have a sort of edginess to them I know they're subversive. Does that make sense? I feel like fermentation's kind of subversive. It's sort of naughty. Yeah, in, a, in this way. I see that. I get it. it. It kind of bubbles away and it does stuff. And, you know, and, and, and in sort of modern kind of big food things, the whole thing is to try and control the fermentation as much as possible and kind of not really... Like, you know, you look at a really boring factory cheese, it's like you're kind of pretending it wasn't fermented, you know. And I think jazz is like that. Uh, um, it's sort of uncontrollable. And well, there's an attitude. So when you play... A jazz piece. The the what's what I'm trying to think. The aesthetic, because you wouldn't play it the same way twice. You'd find a different way to interpret it. And when you make cheese, you can't just make it to a fixed system and recipe. You, obviously, you have your system, but you have to be responsive to the change in climate, the change in lactation. You know, it's it's halfway through the lactation period. It's different. You're in a funny mood that day. I don't know. There's all these imponderable things which led Bill Oglethorpe, who was my cheese teacher, to say the best thing anyone's ever said. When I was complaining about this and saying, why can't you just give me an algorithm for maturing this Benwood cheese? You know, why do we have to do it differently all the time? He said, Ned, if you don't play with your cheese, it'll play with you. <laughs> so that, like, and that's the attitude of jazz to me. It's the attitude of cheese. I've always been politically kind of a subversive, you know. So it's, yeah, I've managed to find a way to be subversive with my job that also tastes really good. Yeah. Is that quirky? I think it's quite quirky. That's 
it's great. It's great. And I, you're right. That that quote by Oglethorpe is One like of the best things ever. Don't don't let your cheese play with you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on that note, Ned Palmer, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And um, here's to good cheese. Cool. Thank you, Katie Quinn. Thanks again to Ned. You guys can follow him on Instagram at Cheese Tasting Co. and check out his work with Cheese Tasting Company. A big thanks to the musician who wrote and performed the theme song you're listening to here, Brian Quinn at BQ Funk on Instagram. If you guys enjoy this podcast, please, please, please leave a review, rate it. I would really appreciate it. And of course, don't forget to keep it quirky. I will see you back here before too long. Bye.